When sharing your faith with a Latter-day Saint, it helps to know what their church has taught on several basic topics. For this reason, Mormonism Research Ministry has provided its Crash Course Mormonism. Crash Course Mormonism includes concise articles highlighting what LDS leaders and church manuals have taught on issues that will probably come up in a typical conversation. You can find these informative articles at CrashCourseMormonism.com. That's CrashCourseMormonism.com. Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. So glad you could be with us for this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. With me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We continue to look at a book written by a Mormon pollster whose name is Gary C. Lawrence. He wrote the book, Mormons Believe What? And there's a question mark and an exclamation point. Subtitle, Fact and Fiction About a Rising Religion. Now, we explained yesterday that we understand that Mr. Lawrence is not a general authority. Most of our study, when it comes to Mormonism, does deal with what the officials in the Mormon church are saying about their faith. But one of the reasons why I think this is important, Eric, is because Gary Lawrence is fostering a lot of the same stereotypes that we hear many Latter-day Saints telling us out on the streets. And so if we're hearing this from Mormons on the streets, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are probably hearing some of the same arguments from their Mormon friends when they're trying to discuss religious issues. How many times, Bill, have you heard somebody say, go talk to a Mormon if you want to understand Mormonism? Well, here's a perfect example of a layman who did serve as a bishop, and even though he was a pollster for all of his life, uh, still has a little bit of officiality when it comes to being a lay member. And so this book, I think, is going to confuse people more than it's going to set the facts straight. Well, I think, if nothing else, when a Mormon tries to use this man's arguments in a conversation, if the person that they are talking to has done their homework on Mormonism, they're probably going to readily see that they're not being told the whole truth. And as I said yesterday, this only seems to perpetuate the suspicion that already exists on the part of a lot of people on the outside of the Mormon church when trying to understand the Mormon religion. So I don't think that Mr. Lawrence is going to really help his case because as we have seen in his book, he tends to go outside of the proper parameters of Mormonism and injects a lot of things that we would say are inaccuracies when it comes to history and even doctrine regarding Mormonism. One of them deals with the subject that we began talking about yesterday having to do with the Trinity. Chapter 3 in his book, Mormons Don't Believe in the Trinity. Now he admits that Mormons don't, but he makes some comments that makes me wonder where in the world does he get his understanding of what he thinks we believe as Trinitarian Christians. On page 16 he says that one of the pre-Nicene fathers came up with the idea of providing a three-in-one God, three gods for the polytheistic, and one God for the monotheistic. Now, I would challenge that statement because I have never heard that before. I've done a lot of study on the Trinity. I've done a lot of study on the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Council. 
Who in the world came up with this idea of three gods for the polytheistic and one god for the monotheistic? That is just absurdity to me. But yet that's in his book, as you said, on page 16. He goes on in that same page to say this, quote, Have it your way, apologies to Burger King, in parentheses, description of the Godhead grew legs as bishops converged in Nicaea in 325 AD for a special council. Is that the history you understand as a Christian who studied this, Eric? No, no. And uh, the ideas that he's putting out are just false. And then he goes on on page 16 and 17, and he credits Athanasius for being that pre-Nicene father when he says the debate raged between the Trinitarians under Athanasius, who maintained that there were three co-equal gods in one substance, and the anti-Trinitarians under Arius, who maintained that Christ was of a distinct substance from and subordinate to the Father. Constantine signaled his preference, and the Arians were routed on a vote of 316 to 2. Now, when I read that, it seems like he's trying to give the impression that the bishops who were called to the council in 325 were trying to appease the emperor. But folks, you got to understand, a lot of the bishops that were at the council were men who had been severely persecuted for withstanding the government. Why in the world would we think all of a sudden now they want to just appease the emperor, even if they felt that what the emperor was saying was false? So when he says that Constantine signaled his preference and the Arians were routed on a vote of 316 to 2, well, first of all, those numbers are even debatable. But certainly there were a great majority who realized that Arius's position was not supported by Scripture. That we do know. But were they influenced by Constantine? I would say absolutely not. They were influenced by Scripture. And when we did our series on the Council of Nicaea, there was a point that I made, and I think it bears repeating. If, in fact, as the Mormon Church claims that the Christians were believing like Mormons when it came to the Godhead before the Council of Nicaea, why then were there no bishops arguing for that position when this council was convened. Nobody was arguing the Mormon position of the Godhead at the Council of Nicaea. That alone tends to undermine this fiction that all Christians believed like Mormons prior to the Council of Nicaea in 325. And you're making a great point there. And I mean, this is a pretty important issue for us. And I think that's why we're so upset at what he's saying here. And when he claims that Athanasius taught that there were three co-equal gods in one substance, have you ever heard the Trinity described like that? No. The best way probably to describe it would be one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a concise way of explaining it. I doubt that Athanasius would ever say that they were three co-equal gods in one substance. That would not be a Christian position, never has been a Christian position. But he goes on to cite Bart Ehrman when it comes to 1 John 5, 7 in our New Testament. In your review, which is found on mrm.org of this book, you say, he uses Bart Ehrman as his source to say that the Apostle John did not write 1 John 5-7 included in the King James Version of the Bible. You write, Eric, he's correct, as well-versed Christians would never say that the word Trinity is ever used in the Bible. He, he uses that same 
bad argument that because the word Trinity is not found in the New Testament, that that can't possibly be a concept that's taught in the New Testament, which of course would be completely erroneous. In fact, on page 17, he says, the Bible speaks often about the three members of the Godhead, but the word Trinity appears nowhere. Well, guess what, Mr. Lawrence? Here's a problem with your sentence. You say the Bible speaks often. The word Bible isn't found in the Bible. So do we get rid of that notion as well? Of course not. And we would agree the word Trinity appears nowhere because it's a Latin term. Tri and unity put together, and the Bible was written in Koine Greek. However, even though the word is not found there, the concept is. And that's what we as Christians try to show by what the Word of God says. Now, I would say that Bart Ehrman is really no friend of Christianity. I've heard him debate. He has no real respect for the Christian positions, but that doesn't surprise me that a Mormon would go to a person like that because they feel Bart Ehrman is somehow an ally in their cause to undermine what has been understood to be Christian teaching. But when he talks about 1 John 5, 7, and he gives the impression that Trinitarians wrestle this scripture, I think he's supposed to be using the phrase resting this scripture, to support the three-in-one claim. You ask the question, well, well, who's doing that? Now, there may be some Christians who have a King James Bible with no notes in it, and we'll see 1 John 5, 7 in there, which reads, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, I might also say that a Mormon who has a Joseph Smith translation or an inspired version of the Bible would also find that verse in their Bible, which makes me wonder if this is really inspired. Why in the world did Joseph Smith leave it in his Joseph Smith quote-unquote translation? But the fact is, the Christian scholars have not hidden the fact that we feel that that verse is certainly questionable. I'm looking at a King James Bible that I've owned for years. And it's an annotated Bible. If you look at 1 John 5, 7 in this edition, there's a footnote. And it says, Greek manuscripts are unanimous in showing that verse 7 should end with the word record. Literally, it says, there are three who bear witness. So here in my Bible, even though it's a King James edition that I'm citing, admits that there's a question about that verse. And that is why I don't think most Christians would ever use 1 John 5, 7. They're using modern versions, and in the modern versions, they'll have a little note at the bottom where it will say, some late manuscripts say, and include that verse, but how many Christians are actually reading their footnotes? And so I haven't heard a Christian use 1 John 5, 7 to support the Trinity in many, many years. Certainly I hear Christians misuse other scriptures, such as the one at the end of Revelation, which says not to add to this book. And so uh, they'll say, well, that means that you shouldn't have the other Mormon scriptures. And we would go on record in saying that that is not a good verse to use. And we want to be fair in how we exegete the passages. But I don't think the way he makes it sound that people are actually using this. I don't know of anybody in recent times who actually has used 1 John 5, 7 to support the doctrine of the Trinity. And I would say that if Mr. Lawrence feels that that verse is the reason why we believe in the Trinity, he is seriously mistaken because that's not a verse, as you said, that we would use, but there are certainly plenty of other verses that show us that the Trinitarian idea is 
based in Scripture. My question, Mr. Lawrence, is I would like to see you defend the concept that there are three gods within the Godhead when the God of the Bible says there's only one God and that he knows no other gods. How in the world can you come up with the tritheism of Mormonism in light of all the many verses that insist over and over that there's only one God? And if you're going to say, Mr. Lawrence, that that means one purpose, of course they would be one in purpose. The three persons of the Trinity would naturally be one in, in purpose. But to say that they are three gods within the Godhead is completely outside of history and outside of the New Testament. On tomorrow's show, we want to go into a chapter that he has titled Mormons Worship a Different Jesus. And this will tie right into what we've been discussing today. Mr. Lawrence makes the same mistake that many Mormon lay people have made in thinking that somehow because the church has the name of Jesus Christ in it, that that automatically assumes that their understanding of Jesus has to be correct. And that is really where we are questioning the Mormon position. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism. hope you've enjoyed today's edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. But did you know you can also listen to past broadcasts at your convenience? Simply go to Mormonism Research Ministries website at mrm.org. Again, that's mrm.org and scroll down to the box that says listen to the podcast. Click here and you'll find links to past shows that cover a number of pertinent subjects. Feel free to download the shows to your favorite listening device. And by all means, please share them with your friends. Once again, that's mrm.org.